0: Hello and welcome to Wealth of Nations, a Euromoney podcast. My name is Chris Wright and I'm the Asia editor of Euromoney. I'm interviewing the leaders of some of the most significant and interesting sovereign wealth funds in the world. The British Columbia Investment Management Corporation, or BCI, is one of Canada's two major sovereign wealth funds, the other being in the neighbouring province of Alberta. BCI is based not in Vancouver, but in the city of Victoria on Vancouver Island, from where it manages around 200 billion Canadian dollars. It is, like pretty much all Canadian pension and sovereign funds, known for its expertise in infrastructure, which accounts for 10% of the portfolio, as well as private equity, another 10.4%. Shortly before we speak, BCI has agreed to conduct a joint deal with Macquarie Asset Management. To acquire a 60% stake in national grids, gas transmission and metering business in the UK. We meet Rami Reyes, the Executive Vice President of Investment Strategy and Risk, at an interesting time, and not just because the market environment of the moment makes it an interesting time to talk to any sovereign fund. BCI was just coming to the end of a six-year transformation program just as the pandemic kicked in. That program involved a lot of alternative investments, it involved galvanizing the investment risk practice, and it involved bringing a great deal of expertise in-house. It meant BCI was well-placed for the pandemic and has performed well despite an unusually high allocation to fixed income. We started by asking Rami to introduce BCI and explain that six-year transformation.
1: Well, thanks for having me, first of all, Chris. And uh, yeah, well, BCI, we're in British Columbia, Canada. So we're the uh, the wealth manager for many of the public sector funds in, in, in British Columbia. So that includes... A lot of the pension funds, uh, but also some insurance funds. We have, for example, a noto insurer and a workers' compensation board. So we'll be covering essentially a a, a mutual of funds, and we're offering investment services to them. So both advisory, but also uh, you know pool funds and investment products. Six years ago, we began transforming. We were a very traditional shop at BCI, investing in you know stocks and bonds and a bit of a, of alternative assets, mostly in real estate. And a lot of our investments were more traditional in nature. We had like a a broad categorization of bonds, for example, public equities. We had a huge domestic bias like many others, not just in Canada, I'm sure. But we had to begin transforming because not that we knew that a crisis was coming tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, we just knew we weren't necessarily resilient enough to go through a very severe shock. So we started developing a lot of new investment strategies. Uh, for our clients, which included a lot of alternative investment on infrastructure, private equity and things like that. In order to properly diversify for any situation, that was one thing. And we also built quite quite an investment risk practice within our our, our BCI. Uh, Like I said, a lot of our clients are public sector in nature, but there's a lot of pensions and long-term investors. So understanding why they're around, why they have their investments, they're essentially liability driven so we had to build something that was uh, you know that truly understands our clients to be able to serve them properly that happened about like i said 6 years ago and um, the pandemic happened i'd say lucky for us i guess towards the end of our transformation we were
0: certainly ready okay now your most recent published result for the 2020 21 result was uh, exceptional uh, 16.5% annual return uh, no, we're we're speaking in rather more troubled uh, investment circumstances right now. But nevertheless, the, uh, the the most recent result was very strong. So tell me a little about that and what was learned through the pandemic um, in terms of you know how how you were positioned for a downturn and how, why your portfolio could perform so well. 2021 results for us would be March 31st, 2021. So you're
1: bang on that. It's exactly the pan- right at the at the. Uh, at the peak of the pandemic was March 2020. And then a year later, here we are reporting our results. So there's uh, there's certainly a lot that happened in that, that fiscal year. From any crisis, you'll know that liquidity is a very important piece of any puzzle. When you're in the middle of a shock, the last thing you want to do is to be a forced seller of anything. So in terms of our investment performance, the first thing is don't lose money. Don't sell anything at the bottom of the market. That's the easiest lesson to learn. Now, for us, it wasn't a lesson learned from, from the COVID pandemic, it was certainly probably an, a lesson learned from prior prices. Um, So building a strong liquidity framework was part of it. Now, if you have sufficient liquidity, you could also be opportunistic. So that's where it came in for us And with COVID. Everything happened so fast during COVID. March 2020, things were falling, it started falling in February. But in order to really properly respond to any kind of correction, you need to be prepared. You need to have the right governance, the right processes in place. Nobody needs to be uh, you know, fighting for capital in the middle of a crisis. So for us being prepared meant all these things, risk management and governance,
0: and it was in place for us. So we, we were able to be opportunistic. Right, right. And I suppose part of that transition has been bringing more and more of your skills in-house. I think almost 80% of the portfolio is now managed in-house and that's been a continuing transition. Uh, did that help you through this uh, extremely unpredictable, troubled period? Just having a greater degree of control within your own shop—it definitely helped us. I mean, sourcing opportunities in the
1: middle of a crisis is is very difficult. I mean, a lot of markets will completely seize up. So having internal investor people that have experienced strong networks to be able to properly deploy in these type of horizons definitely, definitely uh, was helpful. But also, when it comes to managing internally, as you, as you mentioned, control is a very big and important thing. We're a long-term investor. Not all clients out there, not all investors out there have the same investment horizon as us. So if we want alignments of interest when it comes to our investments, say in private transactions, we want to have control. We want to sit on those boards. So you've got to be careful. In the middle of a crisis, a lot of people will tend to short-termism well when we have long-term patient capital that's our competitive advantage so if we want this to be fully expressed in our portfolio ideally we would have control and and that's why for us internal management is one thing but also active
0: internal management is another yes and we're speaking of course in may 2022 the pandemic is not completely behind us but there is a sense of it receding uh, as a threat and now we have a whole other world of other troubles to deal with in market terms some of it a knock-on effect, I suppose, of some of the policy positions taken to deal with the pandemic. Uh, so, how are you reacting to those challenges in portfolio terms?
1: Well, first, we gotta recognize the last decade has been fantastic in terms of returns. Last five years has been fantastic. So, when we think our, our investment performance, we need to understand our client outcomes. So, many of our clients say it would be pension funds. We will measure success on the stability of their contribution rates, for example, or their funding status. So if we look at their funding, they're overly funded. So today, they've built a nice little funding protection around them, a nice overfunded armor. So entering these type of environments, we we feel very confident and comfortable because we start off with a very strong funding position. That's the first thing. Now, our investment needs to be evolving in the same logic. So, if we have front run a lot of our performance, like, you know, returns have been very strong above anybody's expectation for the last decade, but expected returns are lower for the future. So, essentially, it's just a path of return problem that, are not, that is not quite right. But overall, if we've actually had high conviction five, ten years ago about the assets we invest into, we will continue to have that conviction for the ten years ahead. So, it's a long-term game. We, we track our funding positions, our historical performance against our expected return, and I think it's making that equation balance at the end of the day. Now, our investment strategies need to constantly evolve and you know, face to what's in front of us. Right now, as you, as you highlighted, there are challenges. It might be rising interest rate, high inflation. So it's about adapting the strategy to what's in front of us. And the North Star might be the same as it was five, 10 years ago, but the trajectory has changed, and we have to continuously adapt to that trajectory.
0: Yes. Now, your portfolio is quite distinctive, I think, in a number of different ways, which we'll discuss. And one that's perhaps particularly relevant now is the scale of the fixed income part of the portfolio. Uh, when I look at many sovereign wealth funds around the world uh, with a sort of portfolio model, equities tends to be dominant. In your case, fund last disclosed, fixed income was a higher proportion. Now, that's perhaps particularly interesting right now, given what is happening with rates and so many other things. So, so talk through that part of the portfolio. Sure. Well, fixed income is a very broad category, right? It's a piece yes. of the capital stack.
1: So what we, how we think of fixed income internally, we think of it as, as, uh, as three components there's going to be a liquidity provider as a fixed income will be a source of liquidity pro- provider for us. So that's the one piece that's very important. There's going to be collateral management, which is a form of liquidity as well, but that's also going to be a piece of the, of the reason behind fixed income. And finally there's return seeking. So we look at fixed income in these components. So we'll have a, uh, a very intentional liquidity allocation that will match our appetite for alternative investments and in private markets. We have a big focus on private on private markets at BCI. So, having proper liquidity framework is very important to us. Kind of calls back our, our earlier discussion on, on, on uh, the crisis. The last thing you want is be caught in a crisis as a distressed seller, especially a distressed seller of private markets. So, liquidity for us is is imperative. Um, collateral management is another. I mean, when we have uh, any kind of derivative transaction, leverage, or anything that happens in a fund like ours we need to have proper risk management practice and collateral will be one of the main uh, main things behind the, all this. So for us, that's a very important part. So if you, in our annual report, you could see, for instance, we use leverage. Well, leverage will be fully collateralized for us. And that's a very important part of our liquidity management framework. Finally, return seeking and, and credit has been, uh, is certainly a more challenging part to be, place to be, especially in a fixed terms place right now, with rising rates, high inflation, Fixing your rates on the credit side could be very difficult, but we've launched a lot of strategy over the last few years, one of them being a private credit strategy, which is working fairly well in this current environment. I mean, being able to have control once again, negotiate strong covenant on all these deals that we'll be making and having a floating rate behind many of those transactions is very helpful. So we
0: continue to have a focus on credit, but uh, let's call it smart credit. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because private credit and perhaps private equity too, there's perhaps been a bit of a tendency among some to see there's a magic bullet. You know, there's problems in public uh, assets. That's fine. We'll do private debt. We'll do private equity. Everything will be fine. But you still have to get it right, (laughs) which perhaps brings us back to your uh, in-house capacity again. I mean, what's the skill of making sure that you do, as you say, get smart private credit, not just something that happens to be private assets? well,
1: you need to know what you own. In, in credit, it's absolutely fundamental. You need to know what you own. And uh, whether it's private equity or private credit, it, the same logic applies. There is there is a very large universe of things and many much, a lot of these transactions will have a lot of gearing attached to them. So just chasing return could be a very, very risky strategy. Now, over the last few years, you know, growth was paying. So, a lot of people might have actually gotten away with it but again having a prudent a prudent underwriting process is very important when it comes to credit i think it comes down to when you look at public versus private it comes down to your how you negotiate your covenants at the end of the day what you're what you're protecting against is a credit a credit event if there's a default of any kind in your portfolio everybody's going to start reading those fine prints that were that were on the contracts and that's where it gets very interesting to be private because you have the long end of the stick. You can negotiate your terms. So we're not forced into any transaction. We get to pick the transaction we get ourselves into and we get to pick the, the type of protection we want. On the private equity side, I think it's the same logic around gearing. You need to know uh, what you're getting yourself into. It could be some some private equity investment would be a form of levered credit or levered equity. Um, when we look at the, the debt to, to uh, EBITDA ratios of private company versus public, it's certainly more elevated. So once again, it's having a good understanding of what you buy. And in many cases, I think the secret sauce to private equity is, is value creation within the, the company, not just the beta, but really what you're going to be, be creating with that company. So you need to have a plan coming in and an exit also. Uh, which is very unique for private equity compared to, say, public equity, where you'll be investing into a broad, diversified portfolio of assets.
0: Yes, yes. Interesting. Now, I'd like to speak a little about infrastructure. It's always seemed to me that Canadian funds generally, pension funds and sovereign funds, have been pioneers in this space. I was in Toronto just a couple of weeks ago, hearing all about the 407, uh, which around the world is still, I think, recognized as, again, this pioneering moment in uh, toll road infrastructure and private sector ownership within it. So tell me about your own approach of BCI to infrastructure. Well, the the logic
1: between like, what we're trying to achieve with infrastructure is a, is a form of mid-risk asset, if I can call it like that. So you're looking for high predictable income in the first place, and you want to have everything that a long-term investor would want. So for example, high predictable income, stable revenues, high cash yields, and in many cases for us, good governance rights. We wanna sit on the board of these companies, we wanna control their outcomes, and the horizon needs to match the ones of our clients. So if our clients are long-term in nature and they have a, let's say a 20, 30-year horizon when they invest, infrastructure is the perfect asset class when you think about it. These assets are, are there to stay, it's not about buying them and exiting the next year or anything like that. So for us, it's a strong alignment of interest on that front. What we try to own is essential services. Things that are not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, these essential services will bring you inflation protection, will bring you high uh, cash flow uh, out of them as well. So I think putting all this together, infrastructure becomes a very interesting asset class. Now, Canadians have loved it. Uh, you're absolutely right. But I think Part of what's going on is, is, is your earlier comments on on the current rate environment or fixed income challenges. Everybody's trying to exit fixed income and find a better place to make money. And infrastructure, especially core infrastructure, has that beautiful clip and coupon aspect to it. So if you can clip coupons of an infrastructure asset with a high yield, it's a nice fixed income replacement when it comes to your portfolio construction. So there's a little bit of that that's been going on. And I guess the flip side of that coin is that if everybody's replacing their, their fixed income with, with infrastructure, then their cost of capital is very low. And flow cost of capital comes high prices. And you've seen the two asset classes kind of come together when it comes to valuation. And right now, the environment is, is very, very expensive. Uh, everything about infrastructure, especially the core infrastructure, is a lot more expensive than it ever was.
0: Yes, yes. I, I think you're right. Competition is absolutely intense. It has been for years, but especially now. Uh, but you can still find the right assets in practice? You
1: can. I think you have to be patient. Um, I mean, you, you need to have a nice diversified uh, portfolio and, and try to and look at things that are um, maybe barbell in nature or a bit uh, diversified. So if you're looking at only the same thing over and over again, say core utility, clipping coupons, highly regulated, this stuff is very expensive, but if you're willing to take a little bit more risk and say move elsewhere than say develop market, go to the emerging countries, you might find something quite interesting. So I think you need to have a very broad scope and strong partners out there in order to do some efficient deal sourcing. But it's been challenging. It absolutely has been challenging. The current environment is a little bit different as rising yields uh, are encouraging people to start you know, taking some of their, of their proceeds and moving forward but it's been, it's been definitely very difficult. For us, what has worked is really really partnering with the best, partnering with the largest funds out there and uh, really starting to look at having foreign offices uh, because Victoria, we're, I should have said, but BCI is in Victoria. So small island in British Columbia, it's not easy to make deals on our little island in, North, in North America. So you, you need to travel, you get on a plane all the time, you're always meeting partners, looking for opportunities. So having a local office or having a
0: foot on the uh, boots on the ground, definitely helpful to, to increase sourcing. Well, a, a, another point is that uh, you bracket as a description infrastructure and renewables together, um, naturally, I think. So how, let's talk briefly about the renewable side of it and, and how that's, well, again, about competition for assets there and the potential mm-hmm. to Well, the renewable definitely brings a, a, a nice, uh,
1: universe for us. When we look at it at, you know, infrastructure as a, as its own universe, it's not necessarily as broad as if you would start including renewables, uh, on the renewable side, when we think of our clients, you know, liabilities, they're going to be very inflation uh, sensitive. They're going to have, like I said, long-term, uh, long-term outlook. So for us having a bit of renewables in our portfolio brings that inflation protection. That's definitely interesting. Um, there's been a lot more opportunities as well on the on the renewable side. Uh, renewable energy has been has been some of it, but also on the on the ag business and the timber business, we've been quite successful. Um, I think what's the, what's important is just to keep to your to your uh, your process. For us, it's about investing in strong, high quality companies for for first and foremost, and now just constructing a portfolio of a little bit of everything. So when we look at whether it's timber, whether it's it's uh, solar or any of the renewable energy businesses. For us, it's about having a competitive advantage, a long-term uh, asset allocation. Really, we're not trying to get in and get out. So, if there's some you know hot latest asset that requires a lot of capital investing, but that doesn't necessarily bring us that long-term uh, uh, core component
0: that we're looking for, we won't necessarily be
1: attracted to these assets.
0: Yes, interesting. Now another distinctive point about your portfolio was breaking out mortgages as a separate asset class. I don't think I've seen that anywhere else. And uh, I suppose related to that, real estate uh, again, quite a large part of the portfolio. With I think in most recent numbers, it was fourteen percent real estate plus another three and a half in mortgages. So, so tell me what's happening there. Well, we have a, a mortgage. As if you go to you know BCI, say six years ago, when we thought
1: about our our before our transformation, mortgage was likely one of the one of the few credit strategies we had at BCI. So that's a little bit of the legacy of why it's reported separately. Uh, we've, uh, however, like five years ago, we created our own uh, division, say for real estate and mortgages. It is, uh, it's called Quadreal. So they operate, their, their main office will be in Vancouver. They have offices in Victoria and also globally, but they manage everything real estate for us. So whether it's real estate debt, real estate equity, but they also operate our real estate. Uh so that's the biggest transformation we've had on that front. When we when we started that business, our portfolio whether debt so mortgages or or real estate equity, it was 100% Canadian or just, you know, we had some international exposure but it was very very heavily uh Canadian. So maybe 100 is exaggerating, but um today it's about 50-50 between Canada and global. So still high in Canada when you compare it to the, you know, the global uh, GDP, but again having that um that interest rate sensitivity or also that inflation sensitivity, having Canadian assets makes us very comfortable. Mortgages as an asset class is interesting when you combine it with, with equity. Having an ability to invest all over the capital stack brings us a lot of flexibility. We have eyes on the ground and we can see everything that comes our way. So, Getting the option of investing on everywhere in the capital stack is, is, is quite helpful. Uh, a deal could come to us. In one side, we might, in one case, we might be preferring to be on the debt side. In another case, we might want to be on the equity side. And uh, God forbids us a default. Well, we have a real estate business, right? So it's quite, it's quite helpful if that was to ever come to to receivership or anything like that.
0: <laughs> okay. So we've discussed a number of what are typically seen as alternative or liquid assets. We talked about infrastructure, private equity, real estate. Uh, there is no distinct allocation to hedge funds, although from what you've said earlier, I'm wondering if perhaps some of the things that appear in fixed income might, uh, might be absolute return strategies. So, 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 so tell me about that. Is there a role for hedge funds there? We,
1: we, have, a, we have market neutral strategies at BCI. They're, just, they're not carved out separately. So when we make an investment in, in market neutral, it's really intentional and, and opportunistic in nature. So we don't have a dedicated allocation, say, for hedge funds. Uh, where we have it is into a strategy we call the Global Partnership Fund. So essentially, we'll be to replicate a, a beta for equities and have a portable alpha on top of it. And that portable alpha's its mission really is to have low correlation to equities, you know, perform very well in every market environment, just like hedge funds. And we'll put that essentially as, a, as an active strategy on top of passive uh, uh equity investments. Right, right.
0: I see. I and mean, then the other thing that struck me as interesting was geographical allocation. Uh, naturally, there's a, a strong position in Canada as home base, uh, equally naturally the US. Uh, very low allocation to Asia Pacific. I mean, I would say that. I live in Asia Pacific, so maybe I noticed it. But only about 3% of the portfolio went to Asia, which relative to the size of the economy um, looks, looks low. T- tell me about that.
1: Well, it's being North American, I guess, or being Canadian, but I'll explain a little bit, you're absolutely correct when it comes to the domestic bias it's present. I mean, first, is when we think of our liquidity that I referred to earlier, our collateral liquidity, that's all North American, Canadian or US. Uh, so that's going to be a fair chunk of our portfolio. It's going to be invested in, in, in the local economy on the fixed income front. Uh, when you move to public equities, our clients are going to give us a dedicated allocation to either emerging markets, or developed markets. That's how we break it down uh, in Canada or mo- most most uh, commonly developed market will be based on the mar- market cap of the indices. So if you look at the MSCI World for instance, you'll have a portion of that that will be in Asia and we'll have an allocation that will be driven by that 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 weight. So yeah, Air- Asia is a part of our pro- portfolio so for the global portfolio will represent about 10-15% of our allocation. Uh, Moving to emerging markets, once again, we'll be following the indices, at least as a, as a benchmark. Uh, so, emerging market, the MSCI emerging market, for instance, have a fair allocation to Asia. Uh, so, that'll be a piece of it. And every one of our private programs have the ability to invest in Asia. So, that's a little bit more opportunistic in nature and having the right boots on the ground or the partners to, to help us uh, navigate those industries. So, I'd say it's, I wouldn't consider it necessarily very low. I think it's quite close to benchmark. Uh, but being Canadian brings it still domestic bias,
0: that's for sure. Yes, naturally. And then to wrap it up, you, you've spoken of a period of continuing evolution. As you look ahead, what comes next, do you think, in that evolution for BCI? Well, I mean, liquidity is more expensive than ever. Mm-hmm. So we've had,
1: we've I guess, while rates were low and yields were low, um, we did not necessarily need to chase returns. And we still don't. Uh, but I think it's always focused on how we can do things better. Right now, we're looking at our, at our uh, a source of funding, looking at our leverage practice, and we're trying to find better ways to, to borrow and try to do it in a more efficient manner when it comes to, to liquidity. Right now, we have very, very safe um, you know, liquidity provisions and we want to continue with that, but we want to look at how we can unlock new features over the long term. So probably uh, you know, looking at expanding our, our, our financing approach will be one of them. When it comes to our, our, our investment strategy, We've been looking at different opportunities and ventures and growth. So that continues to happen. It's happening right now within our private equity portfolio. And uh, we're looking if we'll want to carve it out
0: one day. Terrific. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the time. That was Rami Reyes at the British Columbia Investment Management Corporation. If you're interested in more on Canada, please read our feature on the Little Red River Cree Nation Sovereign Wealth Fund at Euromoney.com. And look out for our forthcoming series on Canada's major pension funds. This has been a Euromoney podcast written by Chris Wright and edited by Stefan Inglis.